0: This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Visit our historic campus and see how we prepare ministers of the gospel for faithful service. Learn more at sbts.edu
1: visit what God has in store for us, what God has already given us in Christ, it is mind-boggling in scope, beautiful in its contours, but we do need to be wearing the proper eyewear to see it.
0: This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, 3D Glasses for the Heart, was preached by Jonathan Griffiths at the Metropolitan Bible Church in Ottawa, Ontario on September the 30th, 2018. The text is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Listen now to Jonathan Griffiths on 3D Glasses for the Heart.
1: Well, let me invite you please to take up your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 as we return after a little break uh, to our series in the book of Ephesians. And this morning we're going to focus on the end of the chapter, verses 15 down to the end. I'd be grateful if you would follow with me as I read page 827 if you're using a church Bible. Paul writes this. Reporting on his prayers for the people of God, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray together as we begin. Our Father, we pray that this morning you would enlighten the eyes of our heart by your Spirit, that we may hear your Word and understand your Word and be transformed by your Word and leave here to live in the good of your Word and in the fullness of all that you tell us here in this rich passage. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we all know that it can sometimes be hard to pray, Hard not simply to be disciplined and to set aside the time to pray, but hard to know how to pray and hard to know what to pray for. We can always pray for urgent needs, of course, health and financial needs, crises in the community, situations of tragedy and loss. And it's important to pray for those. But aside from those needs, what should be our regular priorities in prayer for ourselves, for one another? It's so easy, isn't it, to descend into bland generalities when we pray. We go through a prayer list and we pray that God would bless so-and-so and and bless so-and-so and bless all the missionaries as well for good measure. And on one level, that's that's fine. It's it's good to pray that God would bless people. It's not wrong, but it can feel a little shallow, can't it? It can feel rather empty if we just repeat that by rote. Praying and praying well, praying biblically, praying in line with the heart of God, it can be a challenge. But when it comes to the matter of prayer, the Bible actually gives us more help than we realize, not least through the prayers of the Apostle Paul recorded in his letters. His prayers model for us how to pray for the people of God. And Paul's prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1 is a particularly helpful, a wonderfully helpful model for us Because here the Apostle is praying not for a situation of specific difficulty or acute crisis, but simply for the people of God as they go about normal life. Here is what Paul longs for the Ephesians. And here, by extension, is what we ought to long for and pray for, both for ourselves and for one another. And so I'd like to suggest this morning that if we listen carefully to Paul in his prayer, he can teach each one of us to move forward beyond one-line prayers that God would bless so-and-so, bless everyone on our list, move us beyond that to something deeper, something richer, something much more in line and in tune with the will and the purpose of God. So let's listen together to the Apostle Paul as he teaches us to pray. You'll notice that Paul begins his prayer with thanksgiving, verses 15 and 16. He's heard of the faith of the Ephesians and their love for their fellow believers. And what's his response to that? He thanks God. You'll remember that in the previous verses, we saw that the Spirit of God is God's seal on a person's life, demonstrating that this person, this man, this woman belongs to Christ. And so as Paul sees evidence of faith and of love, evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life, as he hears those good reports, he gives thanks to God. And he does so because he knows that these things are marks, are evidence of the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul begins with thanksgiving. And actually, if we pause right there and reflect on that, we won't give much time to it. But if we pause and reflect on that, there is a huge lesson there for us in our praying, isn't there? When we pray for others, when we work through a prayer list, perhaps. What a wonderful and right approach. What a wonderful way to begin. You know, I see faith in that person's life. I see a love for others I see a servant's heart there. I see a growing Christian character. Thank you, Father, for your Spirit's work in this person's life. What a way to pray! What a way to begin. Well, that's how Paul starts, but then he moves on to ask for something. And he asks for something very significant. And that's where the focus of attention lands now, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Here is the weighty thing on Paul's heart. Here is the subject of his incessant prayer. That God would give to the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Not that they don't already have the spirit of God. They do already have the spirit. We've seen that. But he wants them to experience the spirit's particular work of illumination. Of giving insight into the revealed word of God. Of giving wisdom and revelation so that they may know better the God to whom they belong. Now, you and I will naturally imagine that our biggest need is for certain circumstances in our lives to change, for certain needs to be met, for certain difficulties to be taken away. That's what seems pressing. That's what seems important for most of us most of the time. And no doubt the Ephesians had some pretty big needs in their lives, problems to address, crises to manage. But what is Paul's incessant prayer for the believer? It is simply this, no more, no less, that we may know God better. Isn't that interesting? When you and I pray for the people who are on our heart, we'll be inclined to pray, of course, that their various needs will be met. We'll pray that their circumstances might change, that their difficulties might go away, and it's natural to do that, but what is the more vital thing to pray? What is the greater? What is the ultimate need? Simply this, that our brothers and sisters in Christ might know God better, that the spirit of the living God might meet them in their circumstances and teach them more of his character and his grace. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't that counterintuitive? Wouldn't that transform your prayer life? Wouldn't it transform mine if we really took it on board? The NIV Bibles that we're using here. Uh, in, In that version, the thought of verse 18 seems to be a kind of separate thought. I pray also, as if we're now moving on to a kind of separate prayer. But actually what follows now in verse 18 is a continuation of this same progression of thought. It's all part of the same thought in the original These are the particular areas now where Paul wants their knowledge of God to grow. He wants them to know God better as they grasp three key things. And here they are. The hope of God's calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the greatness of God's power. We're going to look at each of those and we're going to start with the first one. Paul prays that the Ephesians and we together with them will know the hope of God's calling. Verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I don't know if you've ever gone to see a movie in 3D, maybe presented in one of those dime, uh, dome IMAX screens so that the whole experience becomes a kind of immersive thing. It can be wonderful if a little overwhelming with images coming right out, out of the screen, right at you, and action happening all around you. It can feel like you're entering a new world, the world of this film, the world of this movie. But the vital thing in order to be able to enter into that experience is to be wearing the 3D glasses that they provide you at the door. If you're not wearing the glasses, the experience just does not work. I don't know if you've tried that, just taking off the glasses in the middle of a 3D movie. All you see is a blurry screen. It's foggy. It's unclear. And whatever might be beautiful or inspirational in proper focus, it's reduced to this lifeless blur. And it's kind of a waste of time. Paul knows full well that there are stunning realities before us if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. What God has in store for us, what God has already given us in Christ, it is mind-boggling in scope, beautiful in its contours, but we do need to be wearing the proper eyewear to see it. We need, by the help of the Holy Spirit of God, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened, says Paul. It's a lovely turn of phrase, isn't it? The eyes of our heart. There are certain things that we can only see with those eyes of the heart, with the eyes of faith. But with the eyes of faith, the Spirit helps us to know and see this hope to which God's called us. And what is our hope? What is the hope to which he has called us? Well, it is the hope of transformation in this life and glory in the life to come. That's our hope. It's the hope that God will be at work within us, changing us, transforming us moment by moment and day by day from the inside out. It is the hope that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will begin in increasing measure to be able to say no to the things we hate, no to the sins that ruled us, no to the patterns of thought and behavior that destroy us and that wound those around us. It's the hope of becoming more like our Savior day by day, but our hope is not only a this-worldly hope. It is a hope of far greater things yet to come. It is the hope, isn't it, of Christ's return to gather us to Himself to complete our salvation. It is a hope of resurrection from the dead so that our broken and our failing bodies will be made new. It's a hope of living forever in the presence of our Savior, of being reunited in heaven with his people, so many of whom have gone on before. It's the hope of the ultimate freedom from the power, the effects, the presence of sin. It's a hope of eternal life in God's eternal kingdom. Now, these are very wonderful realities, but we do need help to see them, don't we? (laughs) We need help in raising our sights from the world around us, the world that we touch and feel and see, and instead to look with those eyes of the heart, the eyes of faith, to see that which is yet to come. Now, we all find that hard to do. We all find that challenging. And we find it hard because this world is so often so very pleasant, so very appealing, so very attractive. And in seasons of our lives, when we're finding the world particularly beguiling, we don't readily hunger and long for that which is to come. That's true of all of us, I think. But it does strike me that the Lord sometimes graciously uses our circumstances to prompt us, even to force us to raise our sights once again from the world around us and to fix our eyes on the world to come. We noticed right at the beginning that Paul doesn't pray that the Ephesians' problems will all just go away, or that their lives will become rosy in every respect. He doesn't actually get into that kind of praying. That's not a very Paul thing to pray. He simply prays that irrespective of their circumstances, they will know God. They will see something more of him, something more of what he has done and what he will yet do. As we think of the dreadful realities we've been facing here in our community in recent days, we do want to pray for the Lord's help and his mercy for all those affected. We long for healing. We long for restoration. But we also recognize that the sovereign God can use this kind of circumstance in powerful ways, use this circumstance to remind us and to remind those around us that this present world is not all that there is to remind us that this present world is damaged by sin, broken by the fall, and to cause us once again to force us to raise our sights. I've mentioned before the writings of John Newton, and and in particular his letters, which I'm enjoying dipping into at the moment. In in one of his letters, which a, a friend pointed out to me just recently, Newton writes of how easily we become enchanted, by this present world, thinking it's not as dark as it really is. He writes of this enchantment and of the Lord's kindness in sometimes breaking the world's spell in our lives. Listen to what he says. Thus in the desert's dreary waste, by magic power produced in haste, as old romances say, castles and groves and music sweet, the senses of the traveler cheat and stop him in his way. But while he gazes with surprise, the charm dissolves, the vision dies. T'was but enchanted ground. Thus, if the Lord our spirit touch, the world which promised us so much, a wilderness is found. Newton goes on to say that it is a great mercy to be undeceived in time. And though our dreams are at an end, when the Lord in his kindness shatters the illusion for us, yet we see a highway through the wilderness, a powerful guard, an infallible guide at hand to conduct us through. And we can discern beyond the limits of the wilderness, a better land where we shall be at rest and at home. It's very beautifully put, I think. And the point is that God uses all kinds of means to shatter the illusion of the beauties and the perfections of this world. He uses griefs and illnesses and trials of many kinds to do that. He can even use tornadoes to do that. But it is a kindness of his when he shatters the illusion for us. It's a supernatural work that God does by his spirit to turn the eyes of our hearts to the hope set before us. He does that for us, of course, first in conversion, but he needs to keep on doing it for us, doesn't he? For each one of us. We keep needing to be weaned off the world and to set our eyes and our hearts and our affections on the world to come. And so it's a prayer that we must continually pray for ourselves and pray for one another. That these future realities, this hope, will be so real to us that we will see it with the eyes of our hearts, that we will delight in it, and we will place our hope in it. Paul prays that these believers will know the hope of God's calling. Next, he prays that they will know the riches of God's inheritance. Verse eighteen again. I pray also that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That second half of verse 18 takes a couple of reads to get clear. There's talk of an inheritance here. But whose inheritance are we talking about? What is the nature of this inheritance? We learned back in verse 14 that we ourselves are going to receive an inheritance. So maybe the focus here is on something that we will get from God. That could make a lot of sense. But actually, as we look closely at verse 18, as we slow down and read it, it seems pretty clear that what Paul is talking about here is God's own inheritance. Something that God has set apart for himself, namely his saints. It is his glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches that God has set apart for himself in eternity, well, they are his saints. They're his holy, his redeemed people, his church. You and I together, we are his glorious inheritance. Now that's the spiritual reality. That's what the Bible tells us about ourselves. But Paul knows full well that it takes the eyes of faith to see it. It takes the revealing, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to perceive it. If you ever spent any time in England doing some sightseeing, you've probably visited on one occasion a house belonging to an organization called the National Trust. The National Trust was set up a number of years ago in England to preserve historically important houses and estates for the nation. What's tended to happen over the last century or so is that families who have inherited some of these very great country estates have found that maintaining and heating and 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 caring for and paying tax on these enormous places, places that are generally very run down, it was just too much. And they needed to get rid of them. And so the National Trust was set up to take ownership and responsibility for these places and then open them up for the public to enjoy. And what typically happens is that the trust will take ownership of a place, and when they do, they will have to spend a number of years restoring the house to its glory, restoring the structure, the aesthetics, the furniture, the gardens, so that when they're done, the place looks like it did in its glory days 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 500 years ago. And you can just imagine a family, I'm sure this has happened many times, a family hands over the keys to one of these great houses. It was a wreck when they did so. The bills were piling up. The roof was leaking. The carpet was threadbare. The garden was a wilderness. It was an inheritance that they didn't particularly want. They hand over the keys to the National Trust. And the trust then takes the keys, closes the place up for a number of years, restores it, and then open it up. And a few years later, the family come to visit and see what's taken place. And they are struck by the beauty of the inheritance that they had. A beauty, perhaps, that they never saw, they never perceived. It was a crumbling wreck when they handed it over, but now it is a glorious treasure. Takes the eyes of faith to see the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. It takes the eyes of faith to appreciate the treasure that God has set apart for Himself in His people. If we look out at the church of Jesus Christ, if we look out at the people of God, if we observe ourselves, we see something that is very much less than perfect. We see the cracks, don't we? We see the blemishes, we see the damage, we see the cost, we see the inconvenience, we see the frustration, we see the pain. And sometimes we really struggle to see the value and to see the beauty. We see sin. We see conflict. We see divisions. We see discord. We see immaturity. We see hypocrisy. And we easily wonder what is so special about us. What's so special about me? What's so special about the church? But here's the spiritual reality. Where you and I might see a wreck, God sees treasure. Where we see a mess, perhaps, God sees a masterpiece in the making. Where we see a ruined people, God sees a redeemed people. And in His eyes, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's an inheritance, it's a treasure. I think it's very easy to become discouraged with the church, with the people of God, with ourselves. And maybe that is where you are at the moment. Maybe that's exactly how you're feeling this morning. You feel you've been hurt maybe, or you've been let down, or you're aware of the ways in which you failed others. You see the inconsistencies, you see the weaknesses, you see the failures, and you do wonder, is this project worth investing in? You wonder whether it would be simple. Simply better to privatize your faith, to practice it on your own as so many others have tried to do. Without all the complications of church, without the disappointments and the risks that come with community. When we were living in London, I was walking down our street one day and I, I went past a house where they were doing some pretty major renovations, and there was a whole lot of stuff out at the side of the road ready to be loaded into a dumpster and to be cleared away. And sitting right there was a very messy and very scratched up and faded chest of drawers. It looked a total mess. And it seemed pretty appropriate that it was heading to the junkyard. But I looked at the shape of it and I thought, this thing used to be a pretty nice piece of furniture. I think this used to be an antique at one point in time. So I asked one of the guys on site if it was just going to the junkyard. And and, if it was, could I just grab it? He said, yes, we're just about to break it up, actually, and throw it in the dumpster there. Take it if you want it. It's yours. In the end, he actually helped me carry it into the house. I don't think Gemma was that delighted to see this thing coming in. Anyway, the, the long and the short of it was this, after a few hours of polishing and buffing and filling in some scratches, it came up really quite beautifully. It had these big black handles on it, I didn't know what they were made of wood or rubber or something, they weren't very pretty. Uh, but it occurred to me that they might just be brass under there. So we got some brass, brass polish and after many, many, many coats of polish and a lot of rubbing, they came up beautifully sparkling brass. And it turns out that this thing actually is an antique, perhaps from the 1820s or so, and it is just beautiful. It really is. It was so nice we decided to bring it with us here to Canada. When we moved, we didn't want to leave it. But it took a a bit of an eye of faith, I think, to see it. You had to look beyond the scratches and the tarnish to the treasure below. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that we may know in order that we may see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Yes, church is messy. It's messy. Yes, church can be frustrating. Yes, there are some pretty big scratches and cracks. Yes, there's sometimes more tarnish than there is shine. Yes, the beauty is marred, but the church of Jesus Christ is beautiful. It's glorious. It is God's treasured possession. And if you and I are going to delight in being the church, if we're going to invest in serving the church, if we're going to bear with the failings of one another, the failings of the church, the failings of the people of God, this side of heaven, we need to be given these eyes of faith to see its beauty, to see the beauty of a lost people restored by the sheer grace of God, the beauty of a defiled people cleansed by the blood of Christ. A dead people given life by the Spirit of the Lord. The beauty of former enemies made friends, of former strangers made brothers and sisters in Christ, of resentful people turned grateful people, of greedy people turned generous people, of selfish people learning Christian service. It is beautiful. But it does take the 3D glasses of the eyes of the heart, the eyes of faith, to see it. And Paul keeps praying that the Ephesians will see it. And you and I need to keep on praying that we ourselves and all of us together would see it. And seeing it, delight in it. Paul prays that we'll know the hope of God's calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And finally, the greatness of his power, verse 19 He wants us to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. When we were first married, we bought a used car that we really liked. It was an old Audi, bright red in color, lots of personality. We called it the Red Rocket. Anyway, it ran really well for a few months and then it developed some kind of problem with the acceleration. I think it was an electrical problem of some kind. Any, in any case, when it decided that it was going to misbehave, you basically just couldn't get it to produce power. You could put your foot all the way down and not much happened. We mainly bought the car for my commute to and from the train station to get to work. And between our house and the train station, there was a really big hill. <laughs> our house was at the top of the hill and the train station was, was down below. It was always fine getting down the hill in the morning on the way to work. That was always fine, but getting back up the hill at night was a very different matter. If it was a good day, you'd be basically fine, but on a bad day, it would be a bit of an adventure to see if you would actually make it to the top of the hill. I'd try and build up a little bit of momentum at the bottom, just something to carry me through, and I'd hope for the best. But some days, on bad days, the car would be choking and sputtering and and shuddering pretty badly by the time I neared the top, and I'd just be glad to be home in one piece you and I have any experience of trying to live the Christian life for any length of time, we will have an acute awareness of our own weakness, of our own inability. I hope you know and you recognize something of that. The sinfulness of our hearts is very profound. The determination of the evil one to derail us, it is very strong. The enticements of the world around us, they are very real and they are very alluring. And we're weak to resist those things. We're prone to sin. The realities of sufferings and of trials, they are very, very pressing. And we're easily overwhelmed. The needs of the church, the Great Commission task before us, it's all very big and we are very limited. If we're at all realistic about the Christian life, we should be acutely aware of our own powerlessness to do and to be what God has called us to be. I think we actually become more aware of these things as we go on in the Christian life. More conscious of our weakness, more conscious of our need. I think that's actually a sign of growing maturity. And so it's perfectly natural for us to look at the mountains before us, the realities of resisting sin, of serving the Lord, of enduring through trial, and to wonder, is there enough power under the hood to get me up that very, very big hill? Am I going to make it? Are there sufficient resources available to me for this? And we can be quite convinced when we ask that question in a difficult time that the answer is no. I am going to stall before I reach the top. I can't endure. I can't push on. I can't make it. And so Paul prays earnestly that we will see spiritual reality with the eyes of faith. In particular, he prays that we will see the extraordinary power of God for us who believe. The power, end of verse 19, that is like the working of his mighty strength. That is a very great power. He piles on power words there just to make the point. And in case we're not familiar with that power, he goes on to tell us about its nature and about its scope, its force, its potential. The power that is available to you and available to me is the power, verse 20, which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. It's a very great power. What kind of engine is under the hood? What kind of power does God have? what kind of power does he make available to his people, his saints? It is the kind of power, says Paul, that takes a man crucified by the Romans and laid in a tomb that takes the most humiliated outcast from contemporary society, that takes a thoroughly dead man, a really dead man, and not only raises him from the dead, not only performs this unfathomable history-transforming miracle of resurrection, but takes that man from the grave and raises him up even to heaven itself, taking him from the place of shame and of humiliation and powerlessness in the grave to the place of supreme authority and glory on high, to the place of highest honor in all the universe. So that now this man who was recently crucified, recently laid in a grave, is set above every other power and every other name that is given. Those who follow golf will be remarking at Tiger Woods' amazing comeback from a ruined career to the heights of victory. He's climbed over a thousand places in world golf rankings in just a year. It is a pretty remarkable comeback for what it is. But think of this comeback. Descended from heaven, living as a man, executed as a criminal, laid in a grave, that's the bottom, but risen to life, exalted on high, seated at the Father's right hand. Now, the power that achieved that, that took Jesus from the grave and pulled him all the way to heaven itself, that power is truly powerful. And it is that very same power, verse 19, that is at work in us who believe. Now, remember who we are. Paul wants us to see that God's mighty power is available for us as his saints, as his redeemed people. He's gone on a little sidetrack here in verses 20 and 21 to tell us about the greatness of that power, reminding us of what it achieved in Christ. But in verses 22 and 23, he rounds out the thought and he comes back to us and he tells us something very, very wonderful as he closes out this thought. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. They're poetic words. They're beautiful words. And we read over them quite quickly. But they are truly awe-inspiring. What's Paul saying? God has placed everything under the feet of Jesus. All his enemies. Every force in the universe subject to him. God made Jesus head over everything on earth and beyond earth. And he has done it for the church. In setting Jesus above all other things, God has purposed to bless his people, to do profound good to the church. Somehow, in ways I don't think we're fully going to grasp this side of heaven, all this work of God in Christ is for the church. It is for our good, for our benefit, for our blessing. And this church, which is so privileged, so blessed, is Jesus' own body, verse 23. The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, he lives in us by his spirit. Jesus fills everything in every way, says Paul. But in a unique and a special and a particular way, he indwells and he fills his people. The greatest force behind the greatest drama in the history of the universe is at work among us and within us. The spirit of the risen Christ dwells within me and within you if you belong to him. Can I resist sin? Can you resist sin today, this week? In and of ourselves, not a chance. (laughs) We'll sputter and we'll stall and we'll roll backwards down the hill. But the God who raised Jesus from the grave and seated him on high, he can resist sin. And he fills us, and he lives within us. Can I find strength to serve Christ, to serve his people, to make him known in a disinterested world, a sometimes hostile world? Not very likely. Not in my own strength. But the God who lives within us by his spirit, well, he has power, lots of it. He has a mighty strength, and he can do what I could never do, what you could never do. Can I endure? Can I keep trusting the Lord, walking with him in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, of sadness, of opposition, of disappointment, of grief? No. No, I I don't think I can. And I don't think you can either. But the spirit of the risen and ascended Christ, he is powerful, beyond measure. And he can do what you and I cannot do. But here's the thing. It takes the eyes of faith to see these things. It takes the eyes of the heart opened by the Spirit of God to believe them. We're naturally blind to them and we easily lose sight of them. And so Paul prays, he prays earnestly That God by his spirit might enlighten the eyes of our heart. That we might see and believe these things. And so live in the good of them each day. And how much we need to pray that very same thing for ourselves. And for one another. Let's pray as we finish. Father we thank you and we praise you for these breathtaking realities. The hope of our calling the greatness and the glory of your inheritance in the saints and your mighty power that is at work within us by your spirit we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might see these things and know them and then experience them and live in the good of them and we pray it in Jesus name and for his sake amen
0: You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centred sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.